Lifestyle is medicine when done right, especially food choices, and has the potential to eliminate 80% of chronic disease. Our mission is to be the trusted signal of truth based on the weight of the evidence that rises above the deafening noise of misinformation. We offer you a no-nonsense and enjoyable approach to the fundamentals of nutrition and wellness. Our goal is to give you simple and actionable strategies so you can make smart, health-promoting decisions every day. Welcome to True Health Revealed, the podcast that really tries to bring you the best in information for your health and wellness. I'm Dr. Tom Rafai, CEO of FlexMD, a lifestyle medicine and internal medicine specialist. And I'm really happy, in maybe not the most joyous way, but very happy to bring together Drs. Jay Bhattacharya and Dr. David Katz. Uh, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, professor of medicine at Stanford, research associate at the National Bureau of Economics Research. So combined backgrounds in medicine and economics and uh, strong in epidemiology, as is Dr. Katz, uh, who Dr. Bhattacharya co-authored the Great Barrington Declaration. I think it's fair to say that, uh, David, you and I were signatories early. It was co-written with Dr. Martin Koldorf, who is a professor of medicine at Harvard and a biostatistician at the Brigham and Women's uh, Hospital, and with Dr. Sunetra Gupta, an infectious disease and epidemiologist at Oxford. And of course, Dr. David Katz was the founding director of the Yale Griffin Prevention Research Center. Uh, these are small names, you know, Yale, Stanford, you probably haven't heard them, just Google them the past president of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, and importantly, the founding president of our nonprofit True Health Initiative, which supports this True Health Revealed podcast. Gentlemen, thank you so much for being here. Great to be here. Thank you, Tom. I'm going to have questions for you both, because in the beginning of this pandemic, we had a very similar perspective, although now I've learned and I thought you guys had met before. I haven't yet, but yet still similar-minded in terms of Great Barrington, focused protection, and of course, David's decisive plan on total harm minimization, very much similar minded. And I'd like to ask both of you, maybe the basics about each, although we know, maybe the listeners don't know, but in terms of focus protection, particularly to the vulnerable, particularly the elderly and those at high risk, and what would the world look like if we had followed the suggestions or the guidance of Great Barrington and decisive now with diabetes worsening, hypertension worsening, obesity and many worsening, mental health of America, Americans in shambles. I think even vaccine uptake, you can clarify, uh, is even reduced overall, not just for, not just for COVID and uh, so many more ramifications throughout the world. Jay? I think uh, the, the world would be in a much better place regarding its health. Uh, in, in the poor parts of the world, uh, the World Bank estimates that 100 million people are thrown into poverty on the order of $2 a day of less of income um, as a consequence of the pandemic measures. The world is interconnected. The economies of the West are, are really important to the functioning of the economies of the poor parts of the world. You know, we, we had globalization that led to a billion people lifted out of poverty. That has led to uh, dire consequences for the poor around the world. Tens of millions of people with dire food insecurity, uh, hundreds of thousands of children dead from starvation. Um, and in the in developed world, you've outlined some of the some of the key points. Um, the psychological harm from these lockdowns is catastrophic. 
uh, the you know, one in four in July of 2020, one in four young adults seriously considered suicide, according to CDC study, skipped cancer treatments. We're seeing uh, stage shifts in cancer to later later stage cancer diagnoses, diabetes management that have just fallen down on the job. So we're seeing sort of uh, the, the consequences of later stage diabetes, obesity rates in children skyrocketing, which I didn't even think was possible to skyrocket more than it was before, but it, it, it has. We basically, in public health, decided that there was only one thing we cared about, which is COVID, the COVID control, and just forgot that human health is so much more complicated. Unbelievable. And, uh, and David, you know, the, uh, the decisive plan, and there was an email that you had sent out, it was so prescient, uh, going back and forth, lockdown, in and out. Um, you know, your thoughts in the same regard, please. Well, first of all, Tom, great to be with you and certainly great to be here with Jay. We haven't met in person yet uh, because there hasn't been a lot of in-person stuff during the pandemic, right. but our paths have crossed many times. We've certainly corresponded uh, extensively throughout the COVID crisis. And, and I guess I'm sort of a guest and a co-host, right, Tom? So That's I'm right. a guest host, which That's is a little right. oxymoronic, but, but we'll work past that. Um, well, I, you know, Jay obviously has uh, exceptional knowledge of, of all the ramifications of how we have bungled the pandemic. And I, I largely agree, but stepping away from the counterfactual, how things might have been had we handled this differently, simple fact is we didn't. And I, you know, I keep looking for the lessons that are generalizable because the, the, the opportunity not to bungle this pandemic horribly has come and gone. What will we learn? What will we do better? One of the things that disturbs me greatly is just how the internet fed into this. We were so polarized so early, and I, I, I want to return to that theme, Jay, and actually ask you some questions about how it's affected you. But I, I think that's really damaging. You know, I think action did tend to beget equal and opposite reaction. People retreated into opposing camps. It made it very difficult to do anything moderate, sensible to look both ways before crossing a calamitous pandemic, right? Look one way to see the potential harms of the virus, look the other way to see the potential harms of shutting down supply chains and pushing people into poverty and causing depression, desperation, worsening the opioid epidemic, which we had only just begun to exit before COVID hit us, all of that. And, you know, as I, as I seek bedrock, beneath all of those concerns, you know, the, the, the failure to look at both social determinants of health and viral determinants of health. I think that polarization was a critical malady in its own right. I think this is the first great pandemic of the internet age. And I think that had a lot to do with how badly handled this was. And it's always been difficult in the midst of a crisis to find the necessary calm to speak moderate sense, to take account of all the factors in play, all the forces in play, uh, and, and do what's best for the population. So maybe harder now than ever, but consequently more important now than ever. And we never got, not, not, not from any leader, not from the World Health Organization, certainly not from the, the leadership in this country, and as best I can tell, not from any other, a clearly articulated objective. Here is what we're going to try to achieve. We know what's happened in past pandemics. We understand some of the trade-offs. And Tom, of course, you know well what my position would have been had I run the zoo, total harm minimization. And frankly, I think that should always be the objective in a public health crisis because, as Jay says, we looked at one potential cause of harm only as if nothing else mattered. 
now suddenly ignoring the fact that heart disease kills more people every year than COVID did at its worst. Including and 2020. And cancer yeah. not far behind. Right. right. And, you know, and, and it's not as if those things were going to go away. So, you know, we needed the sense as well as the science to say we're going to take into account all of the things that beleaguer the human population. We're not going to suddenly forget about everything that was here before just because we have a new threat. So we needed a clearly articulated policy. We needed a response that kind of mapped things out in ways first we're going to do what we have to do while we sort out you know, enough data to make informed decisions. Then we're going to transition to less restrictive policies and so on. And of course, Jay and I agree very strongly, and I know you do too, Tom, that while some of us probably needed a whole lot less protection from the virus than we got in the early going, and frankly, this might have been over a whole lot faster if the virus had spread among low-risk populations, moving us toward herd immunity in the early going, many segments of the population needed much better protection than they ever got. And standout in that space is nursing homes, where the virus spread far and wide in the early going. And frankly, almost immediately after learning what was going on in Wuhan and then Seoul uh, and then Lombardy, Italy, we had all the information we needed to know that older people, chronically ill people, and especially people who were both, i.e. nursing home residents, were at the most extreme risk of really dire outcomes yeah. from this virus. That's we right. needed firewalls around our nursing right. homes right away. We didn't get them. So yeah. so many generalizable flaws yeah. in the response that I hope lead to better actions the next time a crisis comes along because guess what? It will. It's going to come along. It definitely and, and, will. And there was a point, I believe, even in some states, the, the majority, if not this high plurality of deaths were in nursing homes. I, you brought up a point. That Jay, I wanted to ask. I've been trying to to figure out what is this 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 uh, bias against natural immunity. I'm wondering if you think maybe, and maybe this has been asked of you before, that maybe natural immunity denial, whatever you want to call it. I mean, it's clearly real. We see from CDC data and, and prior. Uh, you've been discussing this, and we and many have prior to this uh, the CDC reporting it as being real. But is could it be based on on the the Great Barrington's call for herd immunity and that reaction that came against that you know that's that's not the way to go and therefore we have to just deny that natural immunity even exists at all I, I don't know what are your your thoughts regarding that you know the John Snow memorandum which was a written uh, response to the the Great Barrington Declaration uh, by some prominent people including the the current CDC chair. Uh, essentially was premised on this idea that there wasn't uh, strong evidence that there was there was immunity after COVID recovery. Um, but you know what? I think it actually precedes that, Tom. Um, actually, David, I saw a, a, a clip of you in discussion with Don O'Neill in the early days of the pandemic that just displayed <laughs> that polarization. Yeah. I still can't. I still can't believe the That's behavior right. of uh, Mr. O'Neill in that. Right. I mean, it uh, like because it's rather than trying to take your your. I mean, you essentially were saying something very akin to the the the, the harmonization approach right there, and he just he moralized the pandemic uh, in a way that I. Was was absolutely shocking to me, and, and, and in order to essentially use emotional blackmail to to to, sit, to get his way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, healthcare workers have many have been fired over this. I mean, how do we get out of this now that it's so blatantly obvious? And it's great. I, look, I'm triple vaccinated. I prefer to be vaccinated before uh, getting, and now I have had Omicron. Uh, but but still, whatever the case is, people didn't choose to get infected. Then they happened to be, and they survived, and have questions regarding the the need for a uh, a vaccine. I, I mean, how do we come back from this? How do people save face and, or just um, you know, have to admit the wrong? 
I, I don't think there's a way to stay face, Tom, on this. On, on this, the evidence. So in the, in the very first days of the pandemic, I had a conversation with some folks here at the medical school uh, where they, they tried to convince me that the, 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 the default position should be that until it's absolutely proven beyond any reasonable doubt that there's, there's immunity after COVID recovery, after recovery, that we should assume there isn't going to be. Um, and rather than saying, okay, this is another coronavirus, it, the default should be it's going to be sort of like the, the, the reaction to, for an immune-naive individual to the first coronavirus infections. Um, instead, the default was, was the other way. And in fact, I remember after I wrote this, the Santa Clara County uh, um, seroprevalence study, I was on NPR or something, and uh, the, the, the host, this is April of 2020, was, was, uh, was asking me about the, uh, what, what does it mean to have antibody positive? And I said, I, I was trying to be very careful because I knew that there were very prominent immunologists were saying, no, no, don't say there's immunity. We don't know. So I, so I said, look, what we know is that it for certain is that means that there was that you were infected and and recovered. That's what it indicates. It doesn't necessarily indicate that you have immunity after. We, we still that still remains to be seen. And then she started asking me about COVID parties. Well, like, does wouldn't wouldn't this result mean that people are going to go out and throw COVID parties, try to get COVID intentionally? Mm-hmm. Um, I think this idea that uh, that individuals might there, there might be individuals who uh, react the wrong way to data has characterized the entire pandemic. And I think this idea that, there, that, that we don't know for sure there's natural immunity, we can't tell if there's natural immunity, if there's immunity, that that idea was was uh, was not uh, was was it was in part linked to this idea that this thing the public health wanted to do, which is to control how people reacted both to the threat of the pandemic and then later to the demand for the vaccine. Hmm. Um, and I think ultimately it's, I think, undercut the confidence that people have in public health because people can see that the marginal benefit of the vaccine is lower for people who are, who are, who are COVID recovered. Just, that's just a fact. You can't deny that fact. You can still argue that people who are vaccinated should get, who are COVID recovered should get vaccinated, but don't pretend as if the marginal benefit is the same as if someone was immune naive. Absolutely. And Jeff, if I could jump in there. Mm-hmm. So first of all, I, I think the issue of natural immunity has been horrendously neglected. It's just now starting to change, but everybody who is starting to acknowledge it's important is very late to the party. Second, in the absence of definitive knowledge, let's say in the absence of definitive science, the best thing to work with is good sense and precedent. And frankly, every pandemic in history uh, over millennia uh, has ended, to the best of our knowledge, with the acquisition of natural immunity. There were no vaccines until very recently in history. The notion that this would be the first time ever that natural immunity was irrelevant was just a bizarre default. I mean, the assumption should be people who recover from this are certainly going to have some level of protection Maybe we don't know exactly how much. Maybe we don't know if it's better, worse, different than additive to synergistic with uh, vaccines. But, you know, the idea that it's irrelevant, we're not going to talk about it all, bizarre. And then once we started to have information about it, the idea that we would just keep recommending vaccines and boosters to the population as if we weren't already two populations, half or some very large percentage having recovered from COVID and the other half still COVID naive, and so, you know, sort of left you in a position of, as you say, needing to defy the public health authorities thinking, look, I had COVID and, and I'm speaking about myself now. I had COVID and I was vaccinated twice. I don't need a booster. And, and let, actually, let me make this a little more personal for a second. So I developed long COVID. I didn't have a very severe infection because of my health. 
but I'm old enough that it wasn't exactly a picnic either. I felt pretty crummy for a few days, lost my sense of smell, which took a while to come back. But I developed long COVID symptoms. And they were just starting to get better when it was time for me to get my vaccine. I was hopeful the vaccine might speed them on their way. Uh, but they clearly did the opposite. It was an immune system provocation. I, I don't regret being vaccinated. I got the uh, Moderna mRNA vaccine twice. Uh, but my symptoms clearly worsened. It's now a year later. Still have them. Possibly that, that time span has been prolonged because of exposures to Delta and Omicron along the way. But the idea that I should get a booster now, uh, uh, no way. Uh, you know, I, 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 my, my sense is my immune system has seen plenty of SARS-CoV-2 and variants on the theme. And, you know, I need it to calm down, not get more worked up. I think the booster, the, the incremental benefit in terms of protection is probably negligible if it exists at all, whereas the potential to aggravate an already overstimulated immune system is considerable. Almost no discussion of that. So, you know, yeah. just like we didn't have trade-offs considered between the harms of the virus and the massive potential fallout mediated by social determinants of health being disrupted. Similarly, there is no consideration of the trade-offs between what, what do multiple injections with antigenic material do to an overstimulated immune system among people who already have considerable immunity and are probably no longer at risk for severe disease, which is the only thing we should be preventing. We're not trying to prevent a cold, after all, versus where does the vaccine confer maximal right. benefit? Yeah. None of that. And and I think that's the reason for rebellion against the public health authorities because, you know, it was it was so one size fits all information that it kind of was good for nobody. And I've never been in a position my entire career where I was this out of sorts with the CDC, which funded my lab at Yale all those years. I mean, you, these are my colleagues. These are the people I spent my career working with. And all I can do now is sort of shake my head and roll my eyes and wonder what the heck happened here. It seems like from the beginning bungling of the testing uh, and letting the virus run rapid without uh, without adequate testing. You bring up something risk differential when it comes to children uh, that um, are at very little risk, not no risk. And we realize this binary hyper focus is really aggravated things. But now, in, as I understand, in the U.K., uh, no vaccinations until recently for very high-risk children under the age of 12, 71% showing, uh, I think it's at least 71%, that have uh, their own uh, serop, uh, and they have their own antibodies, proof that they've been, and maybe it's more because antibodies can be ephemeral and many short-lived in many cases. Um, yet in this, uh, in this country, we are really pushing vaccination of children and then masking to the point that I believe we're even in uh, contradicting the World Health Organization down to, what, two or three-year-olds. Your, your, your thoughts in, in terms of, um, that's a statement and maybe you can respond to it. What country would you say, both of you, uh, may have run this the best? And, and we realize they're not the United States and we can't carbon copy. And just, but just is there possibly anything to learn from anyone else in retrospect that you think did it pretty well? I mean, I think to me, the key thing is, is uh, you know, what's possible uh, versus what, uh, what, what, what was accomplished. Um, and I think, uh, you know, if you look at a place like Japan, and I think they accomplished quite a bit, given what, what was possible. Uh, actually, Sweden, I think, made some uh, some big mistakes early in in uh, letting the, the uh, elderly in, in nursing homes in Stockholm get exposed. But in large part, they, they used the trust that, they, that they, the public health had built with the population uh, to guide the population to take high high yield actions, you know, when there's uh, when there's high spread 
don't have mass gatherings, advise older people to, st to, to, to be isolated, remove resources. Uh, and I think, like I said, every country has made mistakes. Um, I, so I, th I think uh, places that have maintained the trust of public health that have focused on high yield things have tended to have the best outcomes and have come out of this with public, the trust in public health intact so that they can actually continue to help guide the population better. Um, places that have used force to try and ignored basic science uh, have, have, have suppressed contrary opinions. Um, I think those places uh, have ended up both worse outcomes for the, for the virus and also are in a much worse place in terms of public health going forward for helping the, I mean, who, the population understand, you know, what, how, to, how to address all of the broad set of threats that people face from, the, from you know, uh, chronic disease, from, from the psychological, you know, harms, uh, from, from, uh, from, you know, addiction, or the whole range of, the whole gamut of public health. I mean, I think the United States is in a terrible place now, and I don't know how it gets back to anywhere near what it, where it should be. Yeah, I agree, Tom. And, and and then I'm going to want to ask Jay a question, if I may. But yeah, I think Japan stands out, Korea stands out, Singapore stands out. Uh, but I, you know, I think Sweden did a lot right that other countries did wrong. And ultimately, while you know there was a lot of fussing about their higher mortality in the early going, uh, most of their peer countries around the world caught up uh, in later phases of the pandemic. I completely agree they didn't do enough to protect the highly vulnerable. Uh, British Columbia is another standout, but I, I, I really didn't see the model I wanted to see, a clearly articulated objective from the leader of a country. And, and by the way, we should note, pandemics are global. This really did need to be a global response to work. You know, unless you're an island nation and you seal your borders, the rest of us, there was going to be fenestration at the border. And consequently, we needed to coordinate with other countries. There's an irony, like Australia and New Zealand were crowing that they that they that they conquered COVID right. despite having re re right. repeated lockdowns. But they and they were waiting for a vaccine. But that vaccine could never have been developed alone in neither Australia nor New Zealand because you need cases to test it. So right. they were essentially like a beggar that neighbor. Uh, epidemiological policy. They relied yep, on the yep. suffering of others to get the, to, their strategy to work. Well, that and because they didn't develop immunity, you know, they locked it in places that locked down very strictly. In fact, this is happening in Korea now, places that were highly effective at putting the population away from the virus are now getting exposed and having all the mayhem that other countries had early. So, you know, ultimately a pandemic is a great equalizer. And, and frankly, the timeline was the enemy of the world. Um, I, I've done this math in a number of my columns, you know, and I, I've estimated, you know, at any given time, we've had a quintillion viral particles in circulation. Well, the opportunity for mutation and new strain development with a quintillion virion circulating is off the charts. And so you, you multiply the number of viral particles in circulation by time, and that is the enemy. I mean, that's basically handing the virus, uh, you know, the, the winning hand in, in this um, contest. So you know, getting through this expeditiously would have been advantageous. And that meant risk stratification, that meant total harm minimization, that meant what was called focus protection, the Great Barrington Declaration. I, I called it vertical interdiction, basically risk stratify the population, match your protections to fit the degree of vulnerability. And that would have allowed for a more expeditious path through the pandemic and potentially curtailed all these subsequent strains which continue to cause mayhem a full two years after this all began. So so some standouts, but lots of problems. And so, Tom, if I may, Jay, I wanted to ask you something, um, you know, because you and I have both felt the heat. Uh, you know, we stood up for what we believed in. Uh, I, I, I think I know you well enough. <laughs> yeah. yeah, And you too, Tom. Yeah, I think I know you well enough, Jay, to say, uh, you know, very moderate 
positions informed by a willingness to look in both directions, you know, clearly not ideological, uh, not seeking uh, affiliation with a given tribe, but, but seeking truth, and then just speaking sense and science to power. And the result of that, you know, is probably the greatest excoriations of your career, a, a lot of appreciation too, but from certain quarters, you know, and, and surprising quarters, probably, you know, you felt as I did, people, you know, whose team I had been on my whole <laughs> career were suddenly hurling projectiles at my head. My, my question to you is this, because again, I think at the root of all of this is the infodemic, is the internet age, is the instantaneous judgments that we all rush to and the polarization and the inability to stop, think, consider, have meaningful dialogue before reaching conclusions. Has this made you more radical? That's my big worry, that maybe it's made me more radical. Because, you know, when people start throwing stuff at you, you tend to become defensive. Yeah. And it, it gets harder and harder to find common cause on common ground when, you know, you have to cover your head not to get beaten up. <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> uh, what, do you, what do you think? Has this changed you? I've tried very hard um, to resist that, David. I mean, I, I, uh, I, uh, my, my watchword has been forgiveness. Like, peop, I've lost friends uh, that I, I've had for decades, um, and I don't, I don't, I hope to get them back um, at some point. But it's it's very hard to uh, to reconcile what I thought the business I was in the, the last uh, you know you know last few decades with what the the business I've been in the last two years. It it, it looks like completely radically different. They're like camps. There, there are pe yeah. people who will not listen to a, a scientific journal article that, that that I published just because it's I that, I that published it. Um, you know, there, there's there's uh, there there are uh, essentially like ad hominem attacks, um, uh, guilt by association attacks that have that have currency now that I never thought would have currency in in the the in the sort of academic environments that I've been in before. Um, and and you have like yeah. prominent medical journals. Publishing essentially, I mean, you know, slander or lies against libel against about against like you know. For instance, I've never taken any money for any of my activities during the pandemic. Not not a single honorarium. I've done a lot of a lot of these expert witness work all pro bono, um, and and yet because I I went to give a conference. I went to a conference at, at the American Institute of Economic Research, which I hadn't heard of before the pandemic, and I'm really grateful they posted mm -hmm. it for the great GBD. Somehow I'm coke funded, and therefore should be ignored. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's these kinds of like <laughs> right. attacks that are just. It basically poisons the well of discussion and makes it impossible to actually have constructive conversations with other people and the, the and parts of the scientific community embrace them in a way that I never thought would be possible, but it has. Yeah, yeah I, I agree. Yeah. So Tom, I, I think that's a big part of the fallout here is just, you know, Absolutely. It, it's been difficult in the modern era to find our way past dogma and diatribe to real dialogue, but the pandemic has made it worse. And I, I feel much the way that Jay does, just sort of shocking situations where, where people I always thought of as, as you know, reasonable people where we could respect one another and disagree. In the context of this, uh, you know, you, you, the, the, the ad hominem attacks were coming, you know, left, right, and not center because the center was sort of the lonely place. But that's that's going to be a difficult recovery. Yeah, you both have gone out of your way to speak to anyone. I mean, from uh, one end uh, to the other and your role in Florida, Jay, and you were on everywhere from Mark Levin to Bill Maher. David, so, you know, clearly you're trying to just get out the word. I have a question in terms of maybe going to a silver lining with uh, Omicron, and we had uh, Monica Gandhi on, uh, uh, Jay, uh, David and I, on, on, a, on a previous version of this platform. 
And we were talking about how the, you know, the first four cold-causing coronaviruses, these cold-causing coronaviruses that circulate the earth and infect, you know, whatever, 2 to 10% of the entire Earth's population at any time. And whether they, when they're initially presented to the U.S., uh, to the human population, whenever that was, they, that they could have also been deadly. And this could be, in a sense, in real time, the evolution of, or maybe the devolution of the uh, fifth cold causing. It's not yet cold, but uh, you know what I'm talking about. The mitigation Omicron as a uh, possible um, silver lining uh, mixed uh, blessing in a way. I mean, in a sense, the one question might be before everyone's booster uh, strength runs out, <laughs> maybe maybe we should at this point, you know, barring the idea of any crazy COVID parties in the beginning, which I wouldn't say I would recommend and would have recommended at this point, is it maybe not really wise to just let this one go because here it is a mitigated version and uh, many people who have anyone who's left who's had uh, vaccination uh, that booster is not going to last forever and here's an opportunity uh, before that wanes to be uh, infected with a mitigated version that can provide immunity to delta to omicron and and maybe even um, future variants thoughts on that i mean omicron does cause death still and there's I, I i mean i guess i i uh I guess I'd say it's 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 a blessing that Omicron seems to be uh, le- less deadly. Uh, it still has this age stratification, so the older older people are at higher risk. Uh, and the other thing I'd, I'd say, the note on this before I get to straight straight to the answer is that I don't really think we have a mitigation strategy that actually can over a long period of time, stop the spread or slow the spread of the virus for ex- extensively, at least without extensive authoritarian kind of measures like, you know, I don't know, maybe China has done. Um, and so I think we don't, to say let it go, is it, it prem- it's premised on this idea that we could actually stop it. Um, I, I think the the right way to deal with, I mean, I think the, I, 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 was, I was vaccinated in April and I got the Delta strain in August of last year. Um, that's the right order. So if you have uh, the vaccine on board, what more can you do to protect yourself? Well, I mean, I think maybe if you're if you're really really risk averse and you don't want to die of this, I mean, I can you can you can I can I can see someone saying, okay, I wanna I wanna protect myself. I don't have any problem with that. So that they if they have the means, they can they can not go out into society. Um, but for most of society, public health shouldn't be encouraging that. For most of society, especially societies that are very very highly vaccinated or or have had the vac- the virus and, and recovered from it, there's no good argument for uh, continuing measures to to, uh, to 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 restrict li- restrict life. I think those continuing measures themselves have enormous harm, and the fact that Omicron is appears to be uh, produce less severe disease is is a is a huge blessing. I mean, now certainly is a good time to do that. It was actually, I think, a good time to do that in October of 2020 when we wrote the Great Barrington Declaration. As long as you protected the vulnerable. Right. I have a question for you, Jay. I think I want to try to pull you into mine and, and David's fear on this, because there may have been one thing, and, and David asked myself and, and the incoming president of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, Harvard professor, Dr. Beth Frades, to write an article called um, Making the Case for COVID-19 Prophylaxis with Lifestyle Medicine. And the idea was we saw the oncoming from China to Italy uh, and New York, uh, hypertension, diabetes. It wasn't really rocket science, and, and we're deep into this, but I don't think it's a shock to you to know that if someone was motivated, I know there's a big if, and you'd mentioned authoritarian, so it's not like we're going to go and ban smoking tomorrow, cut sodium down to 1,500 milligrams, nobody's going to eat saturated fat, etc. But 
could we not have, uh, what, what country was it, David? El Salvador, the first country in the world to recommend a lifestyle measures to mitigate the risk of COVID. Did we not lose an opportunity to say, hey, you know, now might be a good time considering the biggest killers happen to also be the biggest risk uh, um, uh, increasers, if you will, of severe COVID to try to get our lifestyle in order and do everything we can not to make people fear going outside and everything else that we did. Any thoughts in that in this regard? David, please go ahead. Yeah, I mean, that, that's so my wheelhouse and, and Jay, by all means, comment. But yeah, I mean, the, the single most neglected area. All right. So, you know, again, chronological age, we can't change, but it's been so clear that obesity, type 2 diabetes, hypertension, cardiometabolic disease, major drivers of bad COVID outcomes. So the first vaccine that was available long before we had the advent of mRNA vaccines against SARS-CoV-2, the first vaccine was a public health campaign to improve the general state of our health. And, and, and you can do remarkable things with lifestyle interventions, improve diet, physical activity in the span of just weeks. Uh, you know, we, we were waiting some number of months in the hope that the vaccines would come fast and, and they came shockingly fast. But that whole time, there was an enormous and completely neglected opportunity to say, you know, it's clear what drives bad COVID outcomes. This is fixable stuff. And oh, by the way, it's the gift that keeps on giving because once we get through COVID, it's still going to be better not to have these massively high levels of obesity, type 2 diabetes, coronary disease, and so forth. We win twice. So, you know, everything the federal government could have done to address that, to raise awareness, to facilitate community programs, and, and it could have been combined with direct protection against coronavirus because, you know, frankly, you could have mobile units going out to neighborhoods, offering them fresh produce right. and, and recipe tips Come and outside, dried beans safe. And, and masks if they wanted masks. And, and, and combine that with, you know, um, outreaching to communities with vaccines when those became available. So it, I completely agree with Jay. Omicron is clearly milder. But the more important thing is that everybody who wants to be vaccinated can be and it's milder for a lot of people because they're being exposed after they've been vaccinated. So it's a combination of the change in the viral strain plus the enhanced immunity of the population. If we had added to that any attention to national uh, employer-mediated, state-mediated, community-mediated, faith-based-mediated health promotion efforts, we actually could have moved the entire bell curve we still and do it improved now. outcomes across the board. Yeah, it, well, I, I, you know, I, again, it's the gift that keeps on giving at any time, <laughs> but the chance to massively alter the toll of the pandemic has come and gone. Jay? I think I completely agree. It's a, an enormous missed opportunity. Actually, this is one of the things I think I've liked what the what the um, the uh, Florida Surgeon General has done is is, is start to emphasize that uh, that you know exercise. Uh, uh, good life, good, good healthy choices in your diet can have an important role, not just with the with this virus, but in so many other things in your life. And I think it uh, it is amazing that instead we said stay home. Uh, we we criminalized going to the beach in L.A. I mean, it is it is it's in, it's incredible. We basically and and you know I'm not sure what you think, David, about this uh, the literature on vitamin D, but that that seems to play some role also in mediating the response of the virus. Um, uh, but we said go stay inside. Like th there are countries where uh, they 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 literally would limit the number of hours a day you could leave leave the house. <laughs> the worst place to get to have COVID spread right inside. <laughs> exactly. Well, uh, that's, so the just, that's the other thing. There was a yeah a lot of attention to you know the, being on the beach outside. Uh, you know almost 
no evidence uh, of spread in those circumstances. All you know, when we hear about super spreader events, you know, they were always in contained spaces. So we were taking people out of the places where the virus was less likely to spread, <laughs> saying spend all your time in the places where it's pretty much guaranteed uh, it'll, it'll spread among. Yeah, and I mean, even the idea that we're even if you're inside, I mean, the the clo- here in Detroit, the closing of gyms while opening bars. And I don't think there was a randomized trial from Oslo, I believe. If there's a risk, but still the totality of risk is reduced. You're in this uh, gym setting. Yes, it's it's not a sloppy high school gym. People are are professional about it. They're, they're, they're distancing themselves. I don't know about wiping everything down, how much that really helps. But you're, you're modifying your immune system. And I think we have pretty clear data now that uh, physical activity can enhance not only your immune system, but even the efficacy of a vaccine, I, I think it's just uh, sad. Even not only outdoors, but even I think the gyms got uh, beat up pretty bad without uh, solid evidence. You know, Jay mentioned forgiveness before. I'll tell you one of the things I'm very forgiving about, and, and I, you know, to be clear, it's not just the ranting that, that's directed at, at us that bothers me. It's ranting in any direction. And one of the things I'm very forgiving of is best efforts to protect people at times of greatest uncertainty. So, you know, the idea that you're thinking, you know, that this virus is going to spread in any contained space where people gather. And so we're going to put all of those off limits, you know, as an initial response while you're trying to gauge the risk, that all made sense. I mean, keep in mind, you know, the Great Barrington Declaration came along many months after the pandemic began. Uh, I wrote my early piece about uh, risk stratified interdiction, which is pretty much the same concept. Um, you know, after it was clear that there were major risk differentials, and we saw that again in several countries around the world. But at times of greatest uncertainty, the precautionary principle in public health says do the thing that's most likely to minimize risk to the population, least likely to introduce harm. So, I, you know, I think we need to be very forgiving of that. But then you need to learn from the mistakes. And once it's clear you're no longer garnering any benefit and you're likely imposing harm, then frankly, the very same principle says time to do a 180. And that's what we didn't see. People got so dug into the positions they took, they didn't adapt. And because we didn't adapt to the changing circumstance of the pandemic, too many people died. I mean, that precautionary principle is it's, it's a very important principle, but it, it was applied asymmetrically, right? So the idea that, right. uh, okay, let's assume, we don't know, so let's assume the worst about the virus. That, that makes sense to me. Even, even in February 2020, it was clear that risk stratification was cl- by age was clear. Um, so you, you could have arrived, I think, at an idea of, 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 uh, the, of you know, I call it focus protection, but, but, uh, but you know, that, that idea of like t- devoting resources to protecting the vulnerable. Um, but you don't assume at the same time the best of the proposed mitigation. Right. So if you right. have a shelter in place order, it's going to have n- enormous consequences for so right. many people, health consequences. You don't assume that that's that automatically going to be fine. You have to you have to still make the argument. You have to like say, OK, uh, how to. And, but then and by making that argument, then you can think about how to how to adopt that, adapt that policy so that you reduce the harm from it, even if you decide to do it. Right. So like what, the way we did it was we said, here are a class of essential workers, here are a class of non-essential workers, all the non-essential workers, you're staying at home, all the essential workers, you, you go get exposed to COVID uh, when we think it might be the worst thing since the Black Plague. Um, even though you're 65, we're going to make you go out and do the job because you're essential. And, you know, even though you're at high risk, if you should get COVID, I mean, I think this is this is the kind of thing where if you just blindly apply the precautionary principle, you end up in a very bad place. If you apply it 
like a scalpel, you'll end up with much better decisions in the face of uncertainty. Well, I tell you, I, I, let me let me ask a, uh, about a story that I think I heard you discuss, and, and David, your thoughts. This And this is in terms of agency of any particular person. We put my mom away like good people. We brought food to her door. We left her alone for months. Uh, and she's, uh, you know, close to 80. And she, prior to that, got to see her grandkids every day. She lives with less than a mile from us. And at one point she said, you know what, if this is going to be, I'd rather die. I don't, I don't want to live like this. I want to see my grandchildren. I, and she's a retired physician, by the way, I choose to take the risk if necessary. I'm, I'm, I want to be done with this. And so she's asking me, I said, well, mom, you know, it's your, it's your life. I remember taking a shower and walking over there, opening the door and about just about to give mom first hug in three months. I said, okay, mom, you're ready to die. And we just embraced and we hugged and it was, uh, it was amazing. And she said, yes, that's it. Cause I could die tomorrow. I don't know. Uh, what the thoughts regarding just, I mean, how do you impose this upon people and say, look, there are things worse than death. Yeah. I think we had no right to make that decision for the vast majority of people. Like, I think uh, you give people tools to say, okay, here's, if you want to protect yourself from the virus, here are some recommendations. But if, but if, if hugging your, your, your child or your grandkids is important to you, I mean, I, I, I'll tell you, if I'm 80 and this is, there's another virus like this then it, that affects, has the same age stratification, I'm going to hug my grandkids. I don't care. Right? I mean, I'd, I'd rather die than not. I, I don't have grandkids yet, but, you know, <laughs> once they come. Um, so uh, I, I, it's, I, I, don't, I don't think a public health that, that ignores those legitimate human needs is a public health that will have any, any hope of convincing the population that has its best interests in mind. Um, so, and I, yeah, I just, I just think it's, uh, I think it was, it's very short-sighted. It's, it's actually of a piece what we talked about earlier. All of the interventions are aimed at what, protecting against one risk, when in fact there are many, many things that are important in life, important in, in, in risk, risk to health and, and, and health considered broadly and not just narrowly, um, that public health ought to concern itself with. And re remember, we're like a human, human science. We're not, we're not, uh, we're not just. You know, like you know, there's this TV show House. I don't know if you ever saw where like there's Horse. this doctor that's just focused, like monomaniacally focused on the disease that's in front of him. We're not that, right? We, if, we, if we're that, then we're not. Uh, we're not. We don't deserve the the place that we've had in society to provide good advice about health. Yeah. So my 82 year old mother told me much the same, and, mm -hmm. and I think you know, in many ways, she personified the balance that we're talking about and rebelled against the asymmetry that Jay is speaking about because she didn't want to get COVID and didn't want to die of COVID and she's healthy and wasn't ready to check out at all. But she said, you know, the notion that at 82, I can't see or hug my grandchildren indefinitely, it, you know, it's just anathema to it's me. And at some point, I, I am going to prefer the risk of hugging my grandchildren to the alternative, whatever that risk may be. So, you know, I, I wrote a piece recently, Tom, I'm sure you saw it, mm -hmm. my weekly column, Pandemic Risks, Responses, and Responsibilities, A Tale of Four Bungled Phases. And I, I lay out there the idea that responsibility needs to be embraced and then passed along. This is a relay race. So, you know, I, I think the audience here should know Personally, I, I don't oppose mandates when the only way to protect some of us is to obligate particular behavior from all of us. You know, a good example of that is there is a mandate uh, about drinking and driving because I can be perfectly responsible. I can do everything right. And somebody else breaks that law and kills me. And so the law has to basically be imposed on everyone to protect anyone. 
there are situations like that that make sense. There were phases in the pandemic where we really did need to depend on one another. But then that changes when everybody who wants to be vaccinated and boosted can be, the rulemaking needs to keep up. And certainly there needed to be respect and recognition in the early going that for people who want to take some level of risk and gather with their family, that's their prerogative. And I I suppose there was never anything to prevent that. But certainly there was a a moral mandate against doing that. And it was really troubling, I think, for a lot of older people who thought, is this the way the world ends? Not with a bang, but with the whimper of me going lonely without seeing the people I love most in the world one last time. And I'm sure I would feel the same way when it's my time to be in that situation. Yeah. Uh, wow. Uh, Jay, you you and, and David, too, we've talked a lot about what's the denominator. You've done a lot of great work in, uh, in uh, Santa Clara and, and zero, uh, zero studies in terms of how many people have antibodies that may have uh, not even known because it's so many. Every version of this has had, you know, probably millions that were asymptomatic. But the numerator we thought you know, is pretty reliable as, as far as death goes. But I, I wonder, and many people wonder, and, and maybe you can comment regarding the CARES Act and the kind of incentivization because of the higher payment that comes as a result of the CARE Act to the hospitals when there's a COVID diagnosis. And is the numerator really re- as reliable? I mean, what are your thoughts in that regards, Jay? So, uh, yeah, the CARES Act provided, I think, a 20% boost to part part. Uh, Part A payments if you if a hospital saw a COVID patient, mm-hmm. um, and then also a bonus on top of that. If I think it ended up something like fifty thousand dollars per COVID patient. Um, the idea was that okay, we essentially told hospitals across the country to stay empty. Hospitals that stay empty essentially go bankrupt. You can't have bankrupt hospitals uh, during, during no, even during normal times, but certainly not during a pandemic. So let's give hospitals a bonus so that they stay stay afloat. A lot of the CARES Act money went to that. It definitely created an incentive to find every single COVID patient, for sure. Um, and uh, the other thing, I think there was like a, a, a distinction. The World Health Organization recommended this. Just like normally in death certificates, there's an art, right? Uh, uh, my, my wife is a, uh, a physician who fills out death certificates a lot because she's a studies oncology. Um, and what she tells me is that, you know, like there's, it's, it's complicated um, sometimes, like what the, what the proximal cause is versus the distal causes and, you know, how do you decide which, what, which, wouldn't, which one to highlight as the primary cause. It's, it's a complicated art. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, essentially, for epidemiological purposes, we said, okay, even if it's, if it's somewhat incidental, you wanna, you're going to put COVID on there. And we counted them as, as that. So there was a, a, survey, a study uh, or, or a, a, I guess, an audit in Santa Clara County and in Alameda County of death certificates that found that almost 25% overcounting relative to what traditional death certificate counting would be. Mm. Um, now, that doesn't mean COVID didn't play a role. It's, it's obviously very complicated. I, I mean, I, I, the idea isn't to like minimize COVID. The, the idea is to, is to acknowledge that uh, it's complicated. And, and uh, uh, so I do think that the, uh, the, the numerator is probably overcounted, uh, in, in, especially in developed countries. Uh, in developing countries, it's probably undercounted, uh, you know, because you, mm-hmm. you, you didn't have so much testing and so on. So overcounting, but it, well, we had a particular act, the CARES Act in the U.S. Where were there uh, overcounting in other countries due to a similar type of legislative uh, uh, financial support for hospitals? I was uh, specifically uh, thinking this could have been a U.S. scenario because we see the deaths per one hundred thousand, or you know, let's say versus UK, is still really high. And I'm 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 thinking to myself, is that more a straw that broke the camel's back? And we've got a lot of straws on our camels here in the United States. Or is it really, you know, COVID, like you said, sure, it's a contributor, but we have our, our, 
uh, you know, the, the stuff that we're made of and, and we're already hobbled with so much metabolic disease, does it take just a little push? Uh, well, maybe that's a bad way of putting it. But you know what I mean, the, the analogy of the straw that broke the camel's back. So not every country had the same kind of financial incentives. And for sure, developing countries did not have the same kind of financial incentives. Um, uh, but I think every country was advised by the World Health Organization essentially to count COVID, even if it's incidental, uh, for epidemiological purposes, just to get a sense of how widespread the disease actually was. Um, and rather than doing the normal death certificate uh, uh, certification where you where there's an, an art to figure out what what exactly was was the was the true true most proximate cause and decide if it was more or less important than some distal cause uh, one we clearly massively undercounted total infections and that makes the neglect of natural immunity that much more important because that's a huge population in fact at one point in the middle of the pandemic the CDC estimated based on some studies they had run, that the infections that were being detected were one-fifth to one-eighth the number of infections that were occurring. Frankly, I think those numbers are both small. I think it's even bigger. But then you look at the total number of cases and you multiply by an order of magnitude, and it tells you, wow, naturally acquired immunity is a huge public health issue. We need policies that acknowledge that. Right. So I think that's really important. And then the other thing, and this relates closely to what Jay was describing, you know, trying to get at what is actually the causal factor in a death, We've had the same problem with causal factors related to adverse events after vaccines. And I've seen instances of the vaccine adverse event reporting system essentially being weaponized because people are saying, hey, you know, the, the number of adverse events following vaccines have, have massively gone up uh, as a result of COVID vaccines, meaning the COVID vaccines are massively dangerous. Well, that's not the case. Basically, the public is suddenly fixated on vaccines. Every bad thing that happens to anybody, I mean, slipping on a bar of soap in the bathtub after getting vaccinated gets reported to VIRS. Right. It then takes a while to sort out, okay, which of these things actually have any causal link to the vaccine? Not every bad thing that happens after a vaccine is anything to do with the vaccine. It's just true, true, and unrelated. A lot of this bad stuff would have happened anyway. You know, being attacked by a shark, struck by lightning, slipping on soap, <laughs> vaccines don't cause all that causation, stuff. Right? You know, it turns out, you know, that there, there clearly is some harm from the vaccines. Uh, in particular, the mRNA vaccines affect the heart, uh, and the Johnson & Johnson adenovirus vaccine uh, caused blood clots. Uh, the blood clots were a preferential problem for young women. The heart effects, myocarditis, preferential problem for young men. Uh, but these were, you know, vanishingly less common with the vaccination than actually with the infection itself. But the weaponization of VIRS was another one of these instances where you, you've, you've got to see through the clutter to establish reliable cause and effect. And that's what epidemiology is all about. And, and that's, you know, again, the opportunity to do that, to make sense of science and share it so we had common understanding was blown up by the, you know, the, the radical polarization that ensued so early in this pandemic. Yeah. Jay? You know, this is something I worked on uh, for the last decade, actually. We worked with the FDA on, on vaccine safety, uh, biologic safety. Um, and uh, the, there are systems inside the FDA to help, uh, to, to help address those questions of causality. Uh, VAERS is visible and out, out, outside, and everyone can see it. The systems that are on the inside are, are involved, like, essentially careful cohort studies where you've 
create cohorts of people who've got the got the treatment and then a, a match control group that didn't and follow them using you you know at, but the problem is like these systems are and the studies take place behind essentially closed doors and the public isn't aware of them whereas everyone's everyone's aware of VAERS, right everyone can participate in VAERS. I, I think part of the problem here is just there needs to be basically radical transparency about this about how how uh, these 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 systems are actually functioning so that the public can see that, look, uh, uh, we're actually taking these these uh, adverse events seriously. We're not just ignoring them, pretending like they're not there. Uh, what's happened during the pandemic is instead uh, the CDC has essentially closed ranks. It's it's chosen what to show the public on the basis of how it wants the public to act as opposed to just showing the public what's going on. So blatantly, too. No, I, I, complete, I completely agree. So, I mean, like, like everything else in the pandemic, we've managed to get it wrong in both directions at once, yep. right? So on the one hand, we have people overreacting to beers data that are available that really don't mean much of anything. And on the other hand, we have the public health officials we're supposed to be able to count on for a dispassionate review of evidence, becoming very passionate about their particular take on the evidence and, as Jay says, sort of circling the wagons to defend that. Um, and all of that has contributed to the great pandemic dumpster fire. My gosh. <laughs> so, as, and by the way, for the listeners, there's a vaccine adverse event reporting system. So as we're winding down here, I'm, I'm hoping we can tamp down the fear. We've had so much of it. We, at one point, I believe the, the public believed that almost half of deaths were in people under the age of 50. And as I understand, still work Average age of death is close to 80 and above 80 in the UK. But the media was so driven by fear. I sometimes, uh, I can't even watch the beginning of certain, I won't mention networks, but they have this kind of, uh, I think, well-designed symphonic music that makes you want to reach for a bottle of Xanax. Don, don, don. And then they mix it in with the news. Um, the, the, there was, though, and I can't, I have to ask, I mean, you've had a major role to play in, in Florida, Jay. And there was a point where someone, I won't mention, you know, well-known name, infectious disease epidemiologist, a specialist in October on one of the channels was saying that, you know, Florida was going to be on fire by December of 2020. And I know, honestly, I don't know if anything, but the housing market was on fire in, in, in Florida. So what, what is the, what, what is the role that you played or, or now play in Florida? And, and, uh, you know, how can you comment on how that, at least that area uh, other than politics aside, just in terms of the management of the pandemic, uh, that there were any lessons uh, to be learned or any satisfaction you had that at least there was one place that was listening to uh, Jay? Yeah, I, I mean, I have tremendous satisfaction about the role I play in Florida. Um, so that, that it started actually just, I mean, I'm not sure how, how he, uh, the governor got my number, but the governor DeSantis on some evening on, on Sunday of of. Uh, uh, in, in in September 2020, called up my phone, uh, and uh, you know, an aide like, oh, can, "Would you be willing to speak to the governor?" And we spoke for two hours, where he just he just started to ask me about papers, like papers I'd written, other papers other people had written, where it was clear he'd read past the abstract. I mean, I was I was just amazed, like, that to, to to talk to a politician who read <laughs> read the literature. Um, that led the next week to a roundtable with Martin Kulldorff and Mike Levitt, who's a Nobel Prize winner, uh, winning uh, uh, biophysicist here at Stanford. Um, and uh, he uh, quizzed us for two hours in front of the press. The press asked us some questions. And then a few days later, he opened, he lifted up a lot of the restrictions that Florida previously had in September of 2020. Um, 
And, uh, you know, while still, I mean, I emphasized in my conversation with them, I emphasized the, the, keep, the importance of keeping schools open. I emphasized the importance of protecting the vulnerable, vulnerable populations. And I think that they, 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 you worked really hard at that. Um, later in December, he called me, was when the vaccines came out, about what the right strategy was to use it. And I recommended prioritizing older people, start with the oldest in the nursing homes first and then, then work, work downward. Um, as the best way to sort of re reduce the harm, the, 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 the life uh, life loss from COVID. And if you look through the, that first, uh, that that wave, that winter wave, Florida did really well. Like if, if you do, like compared to age-adjusted mortality, it was among the top, the, the best in the country, in, among the top big, among the big states in the country uh, in terms of age-adjusted mortality. It was hit hard in um, the late summer uh, of this year with the Delta wave. Um, and I think there were still people that were unvaccinated, older people who were unvaccinated, I think really paid a price for that. Um, but through the pandemic, if you look at excess mortality, overall excess mortality uh, ranked, Florida does, I mean, better than more, more than, you know, like the two thirds of the states and better than California, where, which has had followed, followed a very, very different path. Well, gentlemen, I cannot thank you enough. I, I honestly think um, history, and I hope before we pass, is going to treat you very well. Uh, uh, honor to have you on here and thank you for standing strong in the, the face of what I, you know, frankly can't, you know, just, it's just hell, uh, what you've both gone through and particularly you, Jay, I, um, it's really, uh, it's, it's sad, but I'm also, um, very happy to have you on here. And if whatever consolation it is to say that, um, you know, all in all, you were right. And David, you too. And, uh, you know, honored to, to stand uh, by you both. And we'll probably get heat for this podcast still anyway. But uh, thank you uh, for being on True Health Revealed. Jay Bhattacharya of Stanford, uh, David Katz, uh, formerly of Yale, and uh, now our, our president with the True Health Initiative that brings you this uh, platform, a nonprofit that um, if you like what you're hearing, please, by all means, go to truehealthinitiative.org and donate. We would truly appreciate that. Thank you, gentlemen, very much. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. Thank you for listening to the True Health Revealed podcast. We appreciate your time and hope you'll join us again. For more information on today's episode and to subscribe to future podcasts, please visit truehealthinitiative.org. And to help us continue the fight against fake facts, please consider donating to our nonprofit True Health Initiative.